This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Okay, uh, welcome back. I'm sorry to those who watch every day that we've been uh, on vacation, but uh, I'm sure you've been on vacation as well. Uh, here we are at the Essentials Program, Practical Spirituality, here in Asian Torah in the Old City of Jerusalem. We have a rainy day after Pesach, which is a little rare, just closing the backlight here. Um, but it's, uh, you should know that it's not that weird that it's raining. You'll notice if you look at next year's calendar that we have a, a, a Shanasi Bor. It's a leap year. So we're going to be adding an extra month to keep the seasons in, in sync. If you hold by a lunar calendar, spirituality always works off lunar calendars, not so much summer, uh, not so much uh, solar calendars. You know, look at most spiritual groups work off the moon. The moon has, you know, not that the sun doesn't have its relationship to us, it really does, but the moon has that waxing and waning element, which is causing energy flow uh, in a specific way that has to do with spirituality. So hence the Jewish people follow the lunar calendar. But the problem is if you follow the lunar calendar, your holidays start changing months and stuff and changing seasons. But our holidays are quite seasonal. Hanukkah is always in the winter solstice. Sukkot is always in the spring. It's the gathering of the grain after the summer. Uh, Pesach is always in the spring. It's a spring rite of passage, Pesach. So in order to stick with the seasons, we have to adjust our calendar accordingly. Whereas you'll notice uh, uh, Islam does not uh, adjust their calendar, and therefore Ramadan can fall out any time of the year. We prefer it falls out in winter because then uh, they have very short days. They fast only by day and they feast at night. So they have short days, cool, nice, short days, and then they feast at night. Everything's cool. But when it falls out in the summer, which it happens once every couple of years, then they're much more aggravated and a lot, a lot more stuff like the Israeli uh, government knows that they got to be on extra alert when Ramadan falls out in the summer months. We always dread summer Ramadan months. Now, the uh, today's subject is Jewish ethnocentricity. You know the term ethnocentric? You know what an ethnicity is? Yeah. Ethnicity is an ethnic group. Ethnocentric means that you are overly focused on your, your group, like you think your group's where it's at. So someone who's ethnocentric is someone who thinks their, their group is where it's at. Now, we are... Do uh, you mind sitting here just to man the camera or woman the camera, please? It probably doesn't need anything set for him, but just in case. Thank you. Now, it's crazy. Even the subject Jew and Gentile is a crazy thing to say. Jew and Gentile. Like there's Jews and then the whole rest of the world are Gentiles. Because we don't necessarily see Christians or Mormons or Muslims or Africans or or uh, Hindus. or We call them Gentiles. <laughs> like the fact that they may have different lifestyles or different, you know, beliefs and stuff. To the Jewish people, they're, gen- they're Gentiles. They're, they're just, there's Jews and there's Gentiles. But it's not just that. Gentiles see themselves that way. As long as Gentiles have had any relationship to Jews in their country, in their cities, whatever, they always know, like they would say to you, I'm a Gentile. 
They know they're Gentiles. There's Jews and there's Gentiles. But it's a very strange distinction, Jew and Gentile, because we're a tiny population. We make up 0.01% of the 001% of the world population, meaning 99.9% of people on the planet are Gentile. And there are some 13, 14 million Jews. China, when they do a census of how many Chinese there are, their margin of error is something like 80 million people. <laughs> and we're 14 million people calling ourselves Jews. I mean, can you imagine? It'd be like, it'd be like there's some weird, did I say weird? Sorry, there's some uh, obscure country in Africa that has 13 million people in that particular country. And they're called the Bufostics, we'll call them. So they're the Bufostics, 13 million of them. Now, can you imagine going around the world when people are saying, so, uh, what, what are you? And you're like, I'm Gentile. <laughs> <laughs> what is that supposed to mean? Well, I'm not a Bufostic. And you're like, what's a Bufostic? <laughs> you're like, yeah, it's this obscure little country in Africa, and I'm not one of them. But yet the world knows you're either Jew or you're Gentile. There's lots of types of Gentiles, but you're either Jew or you're Gentile, which is bizarre because we're we're like a we are the tiniest minority. Why would anyone distinguish themselves from this, uh, you know, like invisible people? And the answer is because we're not we're not invisible. We're the most visible. We are the very most visible. And you will find this little sliver of land, which like when the, when you're looking at an atlas, they have to put the word Israel over the Mediterranean because it doesn't fit over our country. It's such a toothpick that the that our little land, like even the slightest thing happens here. I mean the like the Prime Minister passes wind or something. The the it's on the front page of the you know world's newspapers, whereas something like really huge could happen, like a, I don't know, a whole town gets wiped out by some radical group in Africa. Shows up on like in like if it shows up at all, it shows up in like the middle of you know some other page somewhere in the in a newspaper. This place, anything moves in this country, it shows up in the news. All eyes are on Israel, so it's a fact. It's a fact. You can't get out of it. It's a fact that that th this tiny population has this massive impact. And the uh, and just to give one more illustration, what I'm talking about is in the uh, is uh, Nobel prizes. Nobel prizes are prizes given to people who are ex have made an exceptional contribution to any field of uh, thought, science. Uh, Humanity, and normally the Jews are all kind of absorbed into, like for example, Russia's Nobel Prizes. Whoever's Jewish there, it doesn't say Jewish. It doesn't have a J by his name. It just says his name. And if he's an American Jew who gets a Nobel Prize, it doesn't put J by that name. It just has his name. And if it's Israeli Nobel Prize, so it'll say Israel. But what happens if you extract all the Jews out of every country? for Nobel Prizes. Take all the Jews out of the lists of all those countries. And you instead have one list called J, and including all the Israeli Nobel Prizes. And you just scroll down. You put all the countries at the top. One of the countries is J for Jews. And you scroll down. Guess who has the most Nobel Prizes? The Jays. The Jays have the no most Nobel Prizes of all Nobel Prizes on Earth. You have a category, you're talking about science. I'm talking about if you put all the categories together. 
every Nobel Prize together. The uh, when you put them all together, <laughs> the chase. But it's not by a small margin; it's by a crazy margin. Someone once sent, someone did this and sent it as like kind of a viral email back when people used email, and you click on it and. It was crazy. You you could scroll. You could literally tape down your scroll button because you know whatever. America had a lot of them, and Russia had a lot of them. But the Jays, the Jews, it just kept going and going and going. It was like a giant pillar that just kept going and going and going for pages of of uh, Nobel prizes. This is out of a population that that just does. It's an insignificant. If it's a pie chart. Whatever line you draw for the Jews is too too thick for our population. And it gets particularly weird when you look at the fact that we lost a third of our people at the hands of the evil empire, uh, the Nazi regime. We lost a third of our people during this period. Um, not only that, uh, Jews have been uh, persecuted over this period as well in many places. There was also the whole dealing with building the country of Israel, the state of Israel. There was uh, whole movements of Jews. When you're moving, you're generally not early, earning Nobel Prizes. You're just trying to make sure you don't forget your stuff. You know, like meeting uh, Operation Magic Carpet brought in all the Eastern Jews into Israel in 1949, I mean, we've been like kind of unsettled during this whole period. And even in such an unsettled time, look at what we did. Which reminds me of, uh, of the post-war Jews. Did you know that the, after World War II, the Ashkenazic Jews, who had you know, just come out of hell uh, in Europe, they, within a decade, had completely rebuilt themselves, but to a level of wealth that Jews have never experienced in our entire history. Mm. I mean, think about, you know, some of you may know what I'm talking about. If you know Brooklyn at all or, you know, Los Angeles at all or some of these places where Jews went after surviving the biggest hell. Meaning, uh, for example, the people who live in ghettos in America who have basically been emancipated more or less from their the stuff they went through. Let's say since Martin Luther King, you know, like, let's say since those days, they've certainly, you know, if they want to make their way all the way up any ladder, whether financial, political, whatever, we had Obama as president, you know, the, the, they can do it. You know, they can get out. They can get out of the ghetto if they choose to. And you see the Jews came out of, are you kidding? Those ghettos, look, those ghettos that, that inner city people live in, you know, with crime and the creeps and the bloods and the, you know, and the drugs and the everything like where all the where all these people are living and dealing, having very difficult lives. That place looks like Palm Springs compared to what the Jews went through until uh, the end of the war. And yet, a decade later, they went from emaciated, swollen, skulled, distended, bellied people who lost everything, but everything. Meaning, if they were married, they lost their wife or, their, or her husband. They lost all their children. They lost their parents. They lost their siblings. And birthed by miracle, made it out. And ten years later, had rebuilt themselves into people who, you know, you looked at them, they were like. High, like the highest level of, of possibility that a society could ever afford an individual to achieve within a, within ten years.
So who are these people? And, and, and then the final illustration that I'd like to give is, is what I call the three D's, which I've said a million times in here. So pardon me if you've heard this a million times, but the, the three D's are three D's are distracted, depressed, and devoted. Distracted, distressed, depressed, and devoted. I've been all three actually in my history. So just what happens is you have this uh, you have this Sinai this collective subconsciousness. You know, meaning the whole Jewish nation are these people that experience Sinai. And we had this moment of like, you know, the Sinai experience, you know, the THX surround sound, Omnimax, 3D, LSD, blow away experience like no nation has ever experienced ever, ever. There's been individuals who've had prophecy, but not a whole nation together. And the prophecy was stronger than the greatest prophecies in history, which makes no sense at all. But that's what God did. You know, imagine if like, if like you and I were set up for a prophetic moment. Yeah, who's going to get the bigger goods? Like, who's going to get the heavier moment? You or I. So God's going to measure both of our ability to handle it because He doesn't want to hurt us. And you'll get your amount. I'll get my amount. You may get more than me. I don't know what your background is on prophetic experiences. But God generally measures out gently to the prophet. You know, you can imagine that Yonah the prophet probably didn't get the prophecy of Ezekiel the prophet who saw the chariot. And Ezekiel probably did not experience what Samuel the prophet experienced. And Samuel the prophet definitely didn't experience what Moshe, Moses experienced. You get that? But the Jewish people, every single man, woman, and child, from the elderly down to the little guys, everybody got a prophecy that was more intense than the greatest prophets ever received, with the exception of maybe Moses. Full-on freak-out experience. And that then becomes, you know, that's going to last for generations. And you guys know that reincarnation exists. You know what that means, like multiple lives? So according to Jewish tradition, all of us are reincarnations. There's no such thing as new souls since the destruction of the first temple. We're all coming around. Not only Jews, Gentiles have their own system of their soul regeneration, and we have our regeneration. Although you could be born a Gentile, uh, but probably during your lifetime you'll, you'll have made your way back to your Judaism. I mean, you're born in a Gentile body, but a Jewish soul. So there, but we we regenerate, regenerate. But did you know that sometimes previous lives can bleed into current lives? You know about that? You can actually bleed through. And the, the most common reason that people's previous lives will bleed into this life is because of the nature of their death. If the death was something particularly horrific, um, it, the the shock factor of what that the trauma of it can actually bleed into this life and and the way it would show up in this life would be um, super uh, unrational paranoia I mean, you'll be afraid of something that you never experienced see if you've been bitten by a dog you're going to be afraid of dogs until you somehow work it out the, we, when we are afraid of something it's rational but there are people who have an intense unrational fear of something 
And those people generally are, are experiencing an unrational fear of something because the trauma stayed inside the system. Even though normally you're born fresh and you have no recollection of a previous life, in the case of trauma, uh, if someone died through extreme trauma, it can lead to paranoia. Of a, but a very specific, I'm not talking about paranoia, the psychological paranoia, I'm talking about phobia, that they'll have a phobia of something very specific that does not have anything to do with their past. They're, they're, you know, they've asked their parents, did this ever happen to me? Did I almost drown? And they're like, no, you never almost drowned. And um, I, have, uh, I have had uh, my share of experiences with uh, uh, past life regression. And uh, many of those cases uh, were people dealing with uh, irrational terror over certain things that they that when they went in the past life they were they, it did show up that way without telling them meaning they told they were telling me that they found themselves and also amazingly having gone through it through past life regression therapy having gone through the trauma again in a past life they were able they were fine once they came back meaning for example I had a guy who was going on a yeshiva hike in the Golan Heights where you have to jump off a cliff into a water. You put your backpacks in trash bags, throw them off the cliff into the water, they float across and, and everyone has to jump off. But this guy, he was so afraid of water, he'd never even taken a bath. Just kidding, he takes showers. So he, 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 he can't even get in a bathtub, this guy. So, so he came to me for a past life session, which is part of hypnosis. So we did a past life session. And he did drown in the past life. He drowned. We worked it all through. You know, you can do a whole therapy session in the in the over the trauma of the death, and uh, he was fine, and basically fine ever since. He went on the hike, jumped off the cliff into the water, and more or less was was good. Now, um, why are we talking about bleedings? Is because the Sinai experience, that bleeds in. It bleeds into every Jew, no matter what Jew you'll meet. It could be the most secular Jew. It could be a Jew who doesn't even know she's Jewish. She could be raised amongst Gentiles. But she'll always have, as long as they're from the Sinai period, they have the bleed through of Sinai. And so they'll have one of these deeds. Distracted is the majority of Jews. And that is what happens is let me, let me explain how the, the Sinai 3D thing works is is that you have let's call it like you have a heart let's say you have a part of your heart that's called Sinai the word Sinai is written on it and it wants to be fulfilled let's call it like a heart instead of a hard heart we'll call it a hard drive it's a hard drive and it wants Torah software you know if you have a Sinai hard drive it wants Torah software now if someone's raised secular. So the only software they were given was, you know, MTV, McDonald's, uh, you know, soccer. You know, and it's like you got this Torah hard drive with silly software, software that doesn't work. It'd be like it'd be like a computer that has a terabyte of hard drive, working hard drive, like a thousand gigabytes, and the only program on your computer is calculator. Hmm. So it's like a Ferrari in traffic. A Ferrari in bumper-to-bumper traffic is a, is a picture of frustration. 
And so too, someone from the Sinaitic, Sinaitic prophetic experience who experienced that 3D blow away experience at Sinai and is raised secular has nothing to do with the hard drive. The hard drive is, is just rare to go, but nothing to process. And so what happens is that causes what is called an existential angst or a um, what Viktor Frankl called a search for meaning. And and what happens is you wind up, I don't know if you guys ever saw this kid's book called, called Are You My Mother? You ever seen that? <laughs> what was it? A bird fell out of the nest or something? And it's going up to everything and finds like, are you my mother? You know, it's a giant tractor truck. Are you my mother? Are you my mother? It's just looking for anything to see if it's its mother. So you go into what happens is these kids who are born and raised to Jewish homes, but not keeping Judaism. They wind up going up to everything they can to see if it's your mother. Are you my mother? If I become a millionaire, is that, are you my mother? Or if I become a high tech startup guy, are you my mother? Or, and, but the thing is, they're not your mother. None of that Sinai. And so you wind up with the same exact need for meaning, the same exact search for, for, for fulfillment that, that you had in the first place, even after the million or the startup company or the, or the looks you were going for or being the party guy or, or being the, uh, you know, the race car guy or the athlete or the, all that stuff is distraction. And that's why I called it distracted. Because people distract and they distract and they distract. Now, eventually, some people just, I don't know if they get tired of it, but they can't distract themselves anymore. And I got to that place. My distraction was surfing. I really, people think it's very romantic that I surfed, you know, like the surfing rabbi and stuff. To me, there's nothing romantic about me having been a surfer or being a surfer. Is Today, it's just a sport. But in those days, it was a distraction. And, the, and why did I have to go to this country and that country and spend this amount and have more boards and more, you know, more, you know, bigger waves and bigger waves and bigger waves, you know, until I was riding waves that if you saw the waves I was riding, you would all just, you'd drown just watching me surf. <laughs> but like, meaning I only started getting excited when waves were about the height of our ceiling in here. That was when, uh, okay, there's, then there's waves. But if it was doubly the size, then there's really waves. Meaning that means no one's expecting me to show up anywhere during daylight hours. You know, not school, not work, not, not like I'm not showing up. Because I'll be out in the ocean, right, in the double the size. If it got triple the size. So then we were like, you know, we're in like the 25, 30 foot range. So then we were in heaven. But what was I doing? What was I doing? It was distracting. Now, I happen to have a very strong Torah hard drive, and it just didn't last long enough. I think what happened when I was about, oh gosh, I don't know how old, but uh, somewhere in my, I would say it started at 18. I was surfing in Indonesia. I was living in a tree house in the jungles of Indonesia by myself, surfing. And it was just the stupidest thing that you could ever do. I did come back in a wheelchair, actually. I arrived in LAX in a wheelchair. 
uh, coral was growing in my leg. I, okay. I, what happens is when you get a coral cut surfing, you, you need to clean it really well. The cut was so small that I cleaned the wrong spot. I couldn't even find the cut. And that was all it took. So I, I did arrive in the LAX to my parents in a wheelchair, you know, six weeks later. And, uh, but anyway, I think in that jungle was the first time I realized, like, this isn't doing the job. Like, it's not, I'm not distracted enough. And then I went to university and I was at a surf school. You know, it was like, it wasn't school for surfing, but it was mostly surfers going to school there. So in that university, so I was in that in Santa Barbara, surfing in Santa Barbara for five years. And, but by the time I, I was done in Santa Barbara, I remember literally dragging my, I mean, perfect waves. I remember dragging myself across the beach. Just like, okay, I'm going to surf. I'm not going to miss it. There's no way I'm missing this. I'll be out there. And I'm going to surf strong and I'm going to surf hard. But I remember dragging my feet across the beach going like, not doing it anymore. It doesn't work for me. And once you have a really powerful hard drive, which is that powerful search for meaning, but nothing filling the meaning nor able to distract the meaning. So what do you get when you have this huge desire for meaning but no meaning? What do you get? Get depressed. And this is a kind of depression that is unique to Jews. Not that Gentiles don't have it. There are plenty of Gentiles get it. But it's unique to Jews. That Jews suffer depression more than, uh, more than other people. Um, you can check out the numbers online. You, know, you can Google it. But we have some weird, weird out-of-proportion amount of depression. Obviously per capita, because we make up this tiny amount of people. But per capita, compared to Gentiles, Jews suffer greater depression. And the reason seems to be, and again, I quoted earlier Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl wrote this amazing book called Man's Search for Meaning, which is a real serious root of depression. It's not having enough meaning in your life or not having any meaning in your life. For Jews, it's not that I don't have enough. It's that I can't, it, I'm not, like things don't seem meaningful to me. And when you're dealing with meaninglessness, it leads to depression. Now, I don't want to focus a lot on the following point, but it's just something you might want to think about, is that that need for meaning is, is the, I don't know how to say this exactly, it's the most important thing of life, is what you're doing here. Like, what are you doing here? What can be more important than why you're here? What makes your life meaningful? What are you doing here? I'm asking all of you, like, what are you doing here? Now, I know that question is generally not the first question brought up, you know, when you're, I don't know, watching the news or YouTube. But what are you doing here is important. If you know what you're doing here, your life's very meaningful. If you don't know what you're doing here and you're not very good at distracting yourself, so then life can be pretty rough. Now, some people might say the question of what you're doing here is a curse, leads to depression, leads to all kinds of other distractions. So you could call it a curse. But to me, the question of what you're doing here is a blessing. It's a blessing. That question is a blessing. Why? Because I always have mercy on God. Poor God. Imagine being God. Creates you. And if you don't ask what you're doing here, 
So then you're, you're just stuck in some kind of 3D video game till you die. And the whole purpose of God having made you never gets fulfilled. Because I'll tell you what the purpose of creation is. The purpose of creation, besides a lot of other details, is to have some kind of recognized connection between you and that which creates all this thing. I mean, if you know enough physics, you're in a, you're right now inside a, a projection. This is just a 3D projection here. And you have a soul, which is the true you, which has a, a um, avatar, which is your body. Your body is just the avatar for the soul. And so God put your soul into this avatar inside of 3D projection that you might connect to God. That's why you're here. So the question of why you're here, it's that. The rest is details that, that you got to learn the details. But that's like the basic reason why we're here. But if someone isn't trying to find that out, if someone's not trying to figure out what we're doing here, so then he's just a, he's a bumper more than a ball in the pinball game here. He's more of a bumper that balls bounce off of. He's not the ball in the pinball game. But the second you get what you're doing here, the second you realize what you're here, you're the ball in the pinball game. And then you start reeling your flippers. You know, think of the ball and the flippers are on the same team. You know, you got free wheel. You can choose left, choose right, you can choose all the other things. And bounce, shoot that ball up to the top of the machine and let it ding away on every mitzvah you can find. Ding, 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 ding. Ding, 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 ding. Bam. Nail it back up the machine. More mitzvahs, more mitzvahs, more mitzvahs. Learning terror, learning terror, like the ultimate. Learning towards when the ball shoots through that thing that spins around a bunch of times, it racks up a bunch of points. Yeah. You can just sit and learn. Just sit and just keep turning pages. It just keeps flipping around. <laughs> Torah study is the ultimate uh, downtime mitzvah. Because think about it: in your morning, you already said Shema on time. You're wearing your. You already put on tefillin. You know what do you got left? What are you going to do? Go help old ladies cross the street all day? What if no old lady comes across the street? Like you're going to be stuck. Open up any piece of Torah. You're, you're in mitzvah land. You got, you're, you're, it's literally like you're wearing a tefillin all day. But if someone doesn't ask the question, what am I doing here? So then he's not a pinball. He's a bumper. He's just a bumper. And there's something to be said for bumpers. You guys still get married, raise children, go to the park and, and watch them grow and go to work and watch movies and go to concerts and do some sports and, you know, live a life. That's okay. Not, being a bumper isn't the end of the world. But for God, it is. For God, that's the end of the world. That's like, it is the end of the world. Because that means that creating that particular person went without purpose. And God, God really wants us all to be pinballs. He doesn't want us to be bumpers. And it was just by a stroke of luck that I personally got to get to the devoted part. 
devoted to the Sinai thing. And yeah, I guess you can tell just by my look, I'm pretty, pretty dedicated. By the way, these, unfortunately today, these don't mean much, but they, they mean a lot to me. And they, and my, you know, my, my sisters are also, they mean a lot to me as well. And, they, and the, the learning I did today and my davening I did today, it's all very important to me. And they, the, Taking your life and dedicating it to Hashem is like you're just you're you're whole, you're at peace. The whole storm settles and all that existential angst is relaxed and released and relieved and and now I'm here to work. Like I'm now I'm now I'm a coal miner. Now I'm here to, to dig for, you know, I'm digging for coal down here. I, if I've been thrown down here in this avatar, and I know what the name of the game is, so I'm here to make the biggest impact I possibly can to better, better people's lives, to make a difference. To Now, I know a lot of people who are doing that without understanding what they're doing here. And they just decided to make an impact and make people's lives better. That's beautiful. But to do, but it still comes with the existential angst. When you get in touch with a purpose, you, you get your meaning thirst dealt with quenched. And then you can now get to work here and be devoted, spend your waking hours devoted and dedicated to God and Torah and mitzvahs and live a devoted life. Now, back to ethnocentrics and ethnocentricity. There was 2,000 years of disappointment. Abraham was born in 1948, 1,948 years after Adam. From Adam all the way to Abraham was nothing but disappointment. Abraham's generation wasn't much better. But what God did was he decided, you know what, this place is such a disappointment, no one's interested in me, that I'm going to create a people off of Abraham through a breeding exercise. He's going to breed off into Yishmael so that there can be an Isaac. He's going to breed off of Isaac so that there can be a Yaakov, meaning he bred off of, God bred off of Isaac into Asaph so that there can be a Yaakov. Yaakov had the 12 tribes. 12 tribes go into slavery, into Egypt. We create our nation down in the, in the womb of Egypt. We come out of the birth canal of Sinai, splitting of the sea into Mount Sinai, all the way into the land of Israel. And ever since then, we have become this nation that's you know, the Jewish people that everyone seems to know about. Now, I'm just going to mention, um, it's in our last five minutes together, there's seven minutes left, but I'll probably finish in five. Our last uh, five minutes together, what I'd like to just bring up is that our relationship as Jews is really unique in that our relationship is to the king of the universe. It's to the king. Don't take those words like you've seen it a million times in a sitter or something. Melech HaOlam. Our relation, when I say king of the universe, I'm saying something unique here. 
first of all, not every nation in the world recognizes there even is a king of the universe, meaning not every spiritual culture knows there's a king. And even those who know there's a king would never think for a second you can have a relationship with the king. It's so far removed. It's so out there. It's, how are you ever going to have a relationship with the king of the universe? Now, for a lot of you, you probably don't know what I'm talking about, but let's put it like this. If you knew what the universe was made of, meaning the actual metaphysics, physics we know a bit about because we have physicists and scientists and stuff. But then there's the metaphysical world. The metaphysical world is an extremely complex world filled with all kinds of stuff. Some of it is dangerous. Some of it is clean and clear and holy. Some of it is dark and scary. There's a whole metaphysical world out there. And the, the people, spiritual leaders, when I say spiritual leaders, I'm talking about like, you know, the ones who understand the metaphysics. These spiritual warriors, let's call them, know the metaphysics. And it's extremely complex. You'd have to dedicate your entire life to get anywhere there. For you to get anywhere in understanding metaphysics would be a life dedication. But meanwhile, the, we're not talking about... Jews aren't relating to all that metaphysics. We are, but we don't know we are. I Meaning you're just doing a mitzvah. If you're doing some mitzvah, you're doing a mitzvah. You don't know what the metaphysics are, and you probably don't even care. Why? Because if we're relating to the, the, let's say, the power source of the metaphysical, that whole complex metaphysical world, well, where did all the energy come from? It came from the king. It came from the, what's called the king of the universe. What, what universe is there? There's the physical universe and the metaphysical universe. And he's the king of it all. He's the power source of the whole thing. And our relationship to this king is a direct link to the king. Something that's you have to understand is chutzpah for you to believe you have that relationship. Meaning you, you know what you're saying ultimately? You're saying, uh, just get some air on for us. Is this room getting stuffy? Or is yeah, I'm going to turn on some AC. Okay, here we go. Imagine you go on safari in Africa and you get whatever, let's say your driver falls off the, uh, I don't know, he crashes the, he crashes the Range Rover and dies. And so now you're stuck in the back of a Range Rover. And next, you know, you got like some African tribe, you know, with spears circling around the Range Rover and they finally pull you guys out of the Range Rover and take you to the chief and now you're sitting with this chief who's got a big bone going through his nose his eyes are rolled up into his head he's shaking like crazy it's a, 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 a there's a giant thunderstorm going on only on you and your your friends who are in, who are in the Range Rover because he's creating the thunderstorm because they can do that kind of stuff and so you're with this like serious medicine chief who's who's now deciding your fate and it's there's a thundercloud over you everyone else is in 80 degree warmth and you got pouring rain all over you because he understands the the chamber called rain 
which has to do with, you know, we, we pray for rain. It's also hitting that, the angels in that chamber. But he knows all that stuff. And meanwhile, you're sitting there with like your yeshiva or seminary friends. And you're like, what's going to be here? And you've got this like crazy magic man who knows all the black magics right in front of you and knows all the addresses. He's like the postman of the metaphysical, you know, world. I mean, he knows all the addresses of everything. And you decide to say Shema because it doesn't look good. So you're like, Shema, and the, the, you know, the medicine chief looks at you and says, hey, you, what was that? And you're like, you're like, oh, I was just letting out a little prayer. Like, who you pray to? I'm praying to the king of the universe. He would be like, kind of like Pharaoh, like, like, who do you think you are? <laughs> what do you know about metaphysics? You know a lot about metaphysics? No. You girls uh, go to Sam somewhere here in Israel. Yeah, you, you know a lot of you know a lot of metaphysics. No, your relationship with the King of the Universe. Yeah, exactly. She was just like, yeah, yeah, I do. I have a relationship with the King of the Universe. You realize the medicine chief, who since he was a tiny kid was chosen and trained for thousands and th- tens of thousands of hours to be the leader of this tribe and to know where to take them and when to take them, what season to plant and what, you know, every single detail of the lives they'll be living that he needs to know from the metaphysics. And you, you know, some Sam girl whose Range Rover driver got killed is like, you know, has this like buddy-buddy relationship with the king of the universe. And you do. Now, there are cobblers who know what the medicine chief knows. You understand that? You know, there are people like that. We have fewer in every generation, but you get that. There, there are people who know the metaphysics here. You know, the Aries all knew all the metaphysics. Maybe Shimon Bar Yochai were coming up to his yard site. He knew all the metaphysics. He knew much more than any, you know, pygmy or uh, African medicine chief. Maybe Shimon knew much more. We know the metaphysics, but but we simply have a relationship with the Creator. That from the Sinai prophetic moment, that no nation has ever achieved. And you want to hear the crazy thing is, is almost no great medicine chief ever achieved. You think a medicine chief ever experienced prophecy? They'll they'll tell you themselves they haven't. Go find any medicine chief will tell you that the king of the universe talked to him directly. They'll, they're honest. They're not the kind of guys who lie. They'll be, they'll be straight. They'll say no. It's not. <laughs> I guess I haven't achieved that quite yet. And meanwhile, we're all walking around like we're the son of the CEO or the daughter of the CEO. And you are. Because of the Sinai experience. Now, we got to live it, though. we got to live it. we got to live, live up to it. You're, you are from this this special people and the world's counting on you. You're like the teacher's assistant in this giant classroom of our world. And you've got to be a good conduit for the planet, for all the world out there, the Gentiles out there. You're, you're the conduit. you got to do a good job of it. 
Thanks for coming. Shalom, everybody. Be blessed. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.